Good morning, everybody. My name is Brian Forbes, and I have the serious joy of pastoring the young adults here at Beach Point. And I am just thoroughly excited to be here right now with all of you. And I want to start by sharing a little bit about my past. And in particular, I've got two past moments of rejection that I want to share with you this morning because I've been hearing that it's a good rhetorical device for teachers to try and gain the sympathy from the audience. So here's my go at that, okay? So two weeks, two weeks, uh, about 14 years ago, this will be more funny when you hear the story that I said two weeks ago. 14 years ago, I'm in the fifth grade at Courageous Elementary School, a cute little fifth grader at the time by my estimation, and I'm playing tetherball. And I'm playing tetherball with this girl who I think is cute. And then it dawns on me, mid-game, I should ask her to be my girlfriend. Because, you know, in the fifth grade, there are no steps between I think you're cute and we're playing tetherball and you should be my girlfriend. It's just one solid sequence. So, it, it, so the plan comes to me. I'm going to write a note. It's going to say, will you be my girlfriend? Circle yes or no. Okay? So, so I've got the note. And I find her at, near the end of lunch. And I give it to her. We're in line waiting to go back to class. She opens it up looks at it, and then literally, (laughs) so you're wondering, why didn't I just tear the note for the sermon illustration? I need this for rejection moment number two, okay? (laughs) And also notice, she never, and then she walked away, so she never officially said no or yes, so it's sort of an open question still whether or not she wants to be my girlfriend. glad this is funny to you. Uh, Now fast forward a couple years. Now I'm in middle school, no longer cute, now thoroughly awkward looking. And uh, a a new girl enters the scene, and I think she's cute. And I think, okay, same strategy here, just different girl. And so I find a friend, my mail delivery system. He's going to drop this off or give it to her. So she gets to know. Then she finds me at recess, and she's with a couple friends of hers, and she drops off the note. And then walks away. And so here I am. I'm at recess. I've got the note. And I go to the field. I'm already there. I'm just kind of like crouching down. I need to like be grounded when I read this. And I open the note. It says, the question here was not, will you be my girlfriend? It was, will you go out with me? Circle yes or no. Very different question, right? And I look down. And immediately my eyes are drawn to this discolored looking heart that's going around the yes and I'm like, yes! And I like fist bump in the air, and I'm like pumped. And then my eyes go right back to the note, and I notice that the no had been like vigorously circled, like a needless amount of times, you know, to like emphasize that something had gone on. So now I'm like looking at this note, and I'm like, well, what the, what the heck? Like, which, which, way, which way is it going to go? <laughs> which way is it going to go? And uh, I'm a middle schooler, okay? It happens. Which way is it going to go? And it, I look closely and I recognize, oh my gosh, she did circle the yes. And then she went back over it with inked white out, leaving this discolored looking heart. And then she went to the no and just, just around the no to just emphasize that she had changed her mind. And I got the picture. It was clear at that point. Now there I was. It's a sad story, isn't it? I'm roughly... Roughly 12 years old, I'm sitting in the field, and I am absolutely crushed. I mean, my heart is just in shambles and pieces, 
and this thought that, 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 that has come before came again, and it sounded like this. You are unlovable. You are not wantable. You're not desirable. And given my backstory, that, that kind of hit a theme that was in my life. And this, I can admit, is a sort of small dose of suffering, small dose. Though at the time, at the age of 12, it felt really intense. And I found myself asking questions like this. Couldn't have God, you know, just have had made me feel a little more loved so I didn't have to doubt that? Couldn't God have just made me feel more known so I didn't have to doubt that? Couldn't God have just made her a little more decisive so she didn't have to circle two things? <laughs> Couldn't God have just made me feel secure and safe? Perhaps for you, the, the, the suffering is different. Something like, couldn't God have just stopped that tragedy that occurred years ago? Or couldn't God have just saved your marriage? Or couldn't God have just saved your parents' marriage? Or couldn't God have just healed you or your loved one of that very, very severe illness? Or couldn't God have just made his presence a little more known, a little more obvious, so that today you and I didn't have to sit here together asking this dang question, where is God when life is hard? And today we enter back into that series, where is God when life is hard? And a couple weeks ago, Dan Speak was preaching here, and he was sort of making fun at the staff, Beach Point staff, for having planned this series in the middle of, you know, sunny, hot summer times. And he thought it, it belonged better in like cold, dark, wet winter January, right? And I agree with him. That seems right. The, the problem is um, suffering doesn't stop for the seasons. There really is never a good time to be talking on this, which I know Dan affirms and encourages. But here we are today asking these really hard questions. Where's God when life is hard? Um, Where's God when the pain and the suffering is at an all-time high? And Beach Point's approach to this series, rather than try to provide a simple, easy answer to this really complex and tender question, we've decided, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at different narratives in Scripture, different characters' stories, who have dealt with suffering and pain, and then we're going to ask of them, what did they do? How did they deal with the pain and with the suffering? How did Job deal with his suffering, for instance? How did Jesus deal with Jesus' suffering? for instance, what he have to say about it. And today, how does Nehemiah deal with his suffering? How does Nehemiah deal with his pain? And another way to put what we're up to today is we're, we're, we're looking at how Nehemiah offers us a model, a model of somebody who genuinely takes Jesus's words in John sixteen thirty three to heart, which say, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. 
And uh, I got to admit that there's something a little anxiety-inducing about what we're up to today. And that's because on the one hand, there's a group of you probably, almost certainly, who are currently, like right this moment, in the grip of some pain or some suffering. Like right now. And the last thing you need, can guarantee you probably, is a young 20-something preaching you a sermon. Here's what you need instead. Uh, Just a hug. A full embrace. Someone right next to you, shoulder to shoulder, helping you carry the load. And then there's another group here who, who, thanks to God, isn't dealing with suffering right here and now, and who's genuinely hungry for biblical wisdom on how to deal with the suffering. Some of you who want the sermon, how do I deal with this? And so now you can tell there really is a sort of delicate task in this series of properly seeing both groups, and there might be other groups too, but properly seeing at least these two, noticing you, seeing you, recognizing the differences and needs, and then trying to attend to all of you. And so the task before us is a little, it's a little delicate for that reason, but we're going to, we're going to move with that delicacy in the back of our minds, okay? So let me set the stage. I mentioned already, we're in the, we're in the book of Nehemiah, and, and in the Old Testament, right before Nehemiah, comes the book of Ezra. And many think that Ezra and Nehemiah form like one unit, one story, one, one piece of narrative, kind of like Luke and Acts in the New Testament. So have you ever showed up to a movie late, and you timed the lateness just so perfectly that because, you know, here at Beach Point, it seems like we sort of time our lateness. We sort of plan on it. And you've just timed it so perfectly that you hit it right in the middle of the conflict of the movie. Have you had a situation like that? Maybe not. How about one like this? You're going to go hang out with some friends. And right when you get to where the hangout is, you enter the room and you recognize, uh-oh, something literally just happened here amongst, amongst these people. There's a thorough tension that is just covering the air. I could sort of cut through it with a butter knife. Here's the thing. If we're not careful, we're going to do roughly that exact same thing today with Nehemiah. And so let me sort of just kind of like pause the movie here for a second and catch us up to speed because Ezra and Nehemiah, like I said, they form one unit and this unit of text is a response to something. It's a response to Jerusalem's having been broken down ransacked and burnt down all at the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar. And Ezra and Nehemiah record a three-part response, or as one commentator puts it, three missions. So mission number one, this is taken up by the first six chapters of Ezra. This is all about the restoration of the temple in Jerusalem. So about 40,000 exiles or more who are under Babylonian captivity are released to go back to Jerusalem to lay the foundation down and then to bring up the new temple. That was about the first, first six chapters of Ezra. That's mission one, restoration of the temple. Mission two, all about the restoration of the Torah or the law. And so here we get Ezra himself getting permission to go back to Jerusalem. And his job is similar. He took some exiles with him, some supplies. He had to finish building out the temple. And then he had to actually implement the Torah or the law back in it. Now ask yourself, what, what's, what's the Torah? What's important about this? This was basically their rule book. 
This is how, um, this is what enabled Jewish life to resume in Jerusalem. Because the, uh, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that the Jewish folks, kind of like you and I, are a little dysfunctional, right? They, they need rules and standards and a way of living. It's sort of like what we get in the Gospels. It's a way to live that responds to our dysfunctionality. So here's the point. The temple and the Torah were absolutely essential to the flourishing of the Jewish people. Absolutely essential. This is where worship of Yahweh was going down, okay? Now let's pause again. How did all of this happen? Like, weren't all of these people just in captivity? How did it happen that, the, the, that those who were exiled were allowed to return? How did it happen, for instance, that Ezra himself was allowed to return? Because these are, these are big deals, right? How did this all occur? I want to say this. We're going to see a first point today. We haven't even gotten to Nehemiah. All of this, all of this goodness, it all owes to the God of heaven. And in particular, I want you to see that the God of heaven prioritizes restoration. The God of heaven prioritizes restoration. If not for the gracious and merciful hand of God, ain't none of this restoration thing is going down. It's just, it's just not going to be the case. And um, if you don't believe me, I think Ezra, the first verse in Ezra confirms this. So let's read it together. It'll be up on the screen. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. So what did the proclamation say? In essence, hey, you got to let all these people go back to Jerusalem. You got to let them finish up the temple. You got to let them bring the supplies back, implement the Torah. You got to send Ezra. You got to let this happen so that Worship of Yahweh can go down. And all of this because the Lord, the God of heaven, moved the heart of Cyrus. And it helps us to see this really beautiful point that the God of heaven prioritizes restoration. It's important to God to restore. And yet, and yet, going back to where we started today, if you, maybe you can relate with this, but I often feel like my restoration is among the lowest of things on God's priority list when it comes to restoration. Maybe you can relate with that. Like, like, like mine's not a priority to God. And I want us to, to not ignore that feeling that some of us might be having right now. Rather, I want us to just kind of hold it, put it up on the table. And I want us to enter in to the Nehemiah text, bearing that in mind that maybe for some of us, our restoration may not feel like a priority to God. And then we're going to read Nehemiah. So let's do that. We're going to be in Nehemiah 1, chapters, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And here we're going to see the beginning of mission 3. Remember, there's three missions, restoration of, of the temple, restoration of the Torah, and mission 3, restoration of the walls and cities within Jerusalem. So let's read together, picking up in verse 1. This is Nehemiah talking. 
In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God before the God of heaven. Notice the, notice the scene here. So Nehemiah is at work, presumably. He's cupbearer to King Xerxes, and he's at work, and this is where he receives the news. Now, try to put yourself in this position. You're at work. And from afar, you see someone drawing near, and this is someone really dear to you, a family member, a friend, and you love this person, and you see them from afar, and you get excited because you haven't seen them in a while. And then they get closer, and your stomach begins to turn. Because you notice that face. It's the face that something terrible has just happened. And then the news comes to you that your neighborhood was just burnt down. In shambles, in ruins right now. And that of the people who are there, some of them made it out okay. The vast majority did not. Some no longer with us. Some now under captivity. Okay, that's the scene that we just read about in Nehemiah. That's the context we just read in Nehemiah. And remember what we're curious about in this series. How does Nehemiah find God when life is hard, when life is painful, when the suffering is intense? How does he respond? Here's his response to the trouble, to the suffering, to the pain. He sits down. He planted himself. He stopped what he was doing. In one sense, he sort of hit the off switch on all the stuff that was going on around him. When suffering strikes, when pain finds you, remember Jesus' words in John 16, trouble will come. Here's what we see in Nehemiah today, that the God of heaven invites your sitting and your mourning, your weeping, your fasting, and your praying. The God of heaven invites your sitting and your weeping, your mourning and your fasting, and you're praying. How did God, excuse me, how did Nehemiah find God in the midst of his pain and his suffering? He took a seat. This was probably one of the greatest tragedies he'll ever face in his life. And his response was to take a seat, to weep, to mourn, to fast, and to pray. And there's, a, there's more uh, that meets the eye here, I think. Um, Nehemiah is actually respecting a process. And you wouldn't get that from just reading what we read. And the process is all about grieving. Jewish culture, they really took grieving seriously. And there were stages to it. Kind of like the five stages of grief. Are you familiar with that? So there's a process here. So it started this way. If, it was, if there was a death, have the funeral as soon as possible. That was stage one. Stage two comes right after. 
immediately plant yourself, sit down where you live, and do that for seven days. And as you're sitting there, allow your, likely your family is with you, your close-knit family, and your community is attending to you. Your close-knit, bringing you meals, condolences. Okay, now, now what's important about this posture, just out of curiosity? Like, why does this matter? Why, why, why is it important to sit down? And here's what we see when you, when you read into this bit about their grieving process. See, when they would sit, they would either get on a chair that was low to the ground or like a box, or maybe they'd sit on the ground itself. Now, imagine I'm not on an elevated stage, but I'm on the ground. What's going on here? What's important about this? Well, the, what, what they were saying was, you're actually trying to ground yourself when you're sitting, and you're to stay there for up to seven days because they recognized everything around you is probably feeling really ungrounded. So this is helping that as a response. And then after that, after seven days of that, about 30 days of resisting entertainment. And then about up to a year for some people of resisting unnecessary celebrations. The whole point is they're trying to, to, to keep the distractions at bay. Now notice, I'm not actually prescribing this to you. But what I am wanting to say is that there's a principle somewhere in here that we should extract and take over and, and practice it in our own lives and the principle is this. What's the point of all of this? Why is grieving so important to, to Nehemiah? It's because when you do it, when you take a second to sit, you can actually attend to yourself. You can actually attend to what's going on in your head, in your heart. You can actually attend to how distant or near God feels. And notice that there's no promise in here unfortunately, about the suffering going away. No promises about the pain being reduced. No promises about God's presence being more obvious than ever. Nope, those aren't the points of the practice of the wisdom here. The point is one about attending to yourself. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And in that, he's sort of assuming that you're properly loving yourself. And so here we get wisdom from Nehemiah on how to do that. Take a seat. Gerald Sitzer, he's professor of theology at Whitworth University in Washington, and he thinks of himself as an ordinary person who's trying to serve as a bridge between academia and ordinary people. And and he's fascinated with ancient wisdom, and he's given his life over to it. And Gerald married his first wife, Lynn, when he was very young, and after having trouble conceiving, they had four kids in the span of six years. And two years after Gerald's um, last uh, child was born, um, they were driving. Gerald, his four kids, his wife, and his mother, who was visiting for the weekend. And as they were driving, they were hit by a drunk driver. And in a moment, one of Gerald's daughters, his wife, and his mother were all killed. In literally a moment, three generations of women in his life disappeared. And later on in the interview where he tells this story, Gerald says that this tragedy launched him more deeply into his study of ancient wisdom, but this time it was for himself. 
And what he notes about our modern culture is this, that our culture tends to offer up this prescription, just get over it. Just get over it. And the ancient wisdom that Gerald found sounded like this. No, 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 no. Do not get over it. The wisdom of the ancients, rather, grow into it. Carry it with you. Learn how to hold it in your heart. It's not about getting over, he says. It's about growing into. It's not about just getting through it, he says. It's about absorbing it. Learning to have it with you. And this, my friends, I think is something like the wisdom that we're getting from Nehemiah. Nehemiah's response. Sitting, mourning, weeping, praying, fasting. These are responses which seek to grow us into the suffering rather than seek to get us over it. And the God of heaven invites it all. The God of heaven invites it all. Even Jesus, in naming the various groups of people who are going to be blessed and found in the kingdom of God, he names those who mourn in Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So in one way, today is about receiving permission, not just from Nehemiah, but from Jesus himself too. Permission to pause permission to not always have to go, go, go. Permission then to resist these really intense pressures. Now remember the question we started with. How how does Nehemiah find God in the midst of his pain? How does Nehemiah offer us a model of somebody who who genuinely takes Jesus' words to heart in John 16, 33? He seeks after the undistracted life in the midst of his pain. He attends to himself. He sits down. He plants himself. He grounds himself so that he can attend to himself, so that he can be attended to by those who love him, and so that he can attend to God as far or near as he feels. But we know, right, that this is far from easy. And part of that, a lot of that owes to the fact that we live in Orange County, one of the busiest places in the world, it seems like. And just the other day, actually, in the middle of writing this, I'm in my office, and I have to use the bathroom. And if you've been around the campus, you can sort of tell. And the thing, it's now a mission to get from the youth building to, like, the nearest bathroom uh, in the worship center. And so I, I am just sort of, like, walking along these grassy knolls, on the side of the worship center. And I'm moving, like, real slow. It's, I'm straight up just moseying all the way over. And, and so I must not have had to use the bathroom that bad, right? And, and then it dawns on me, like, I should kind of slow down, like, even more. So at this point, I'm almost not even, like, walking. And this is so beautiful outside. And I just stop, like, and take a deep, I kid you not, this happened. I take a deep breath, like, <sighs> and then it occurs to me, if someone's watching this right now, they're going to think something is really wrong with Brian. And people already think that something's really wrong with Brian. So this is like next level wrongness, okay? And this is just one case inside of thousands. Think about crying in public. Pretty taboo, isn't it? Think about going to a restaurant by yourself, no phone with you, you left it in the car, and you're just sitting there. People might think something kind of weird with this person. The culture we live in makes it very difficult for us to pursue the slow life. It makes it difficult for us to, to mosey, to sit. 
to attend to ourselves. Our culture makes that really, really difficult. And so now I get to ask you, in view of all of this, in view of the fact that our culture makes it hard for us to take Nehemiah's words to heart, what do you need to, to sit with? What, what's been the thing that's been running through your mind throughout our time together this morning that you need to mosey with, that you need to just plant yourself with, that you need to hold for a second? Whether it's a big tragedy or a small one, something that seems crazy significant or something not, what's, what's the thing or things you need to sit with this week? Or perhaps who's the person you need to sit with? Because today, the challenge from, from Nehemiah's response is to pick up the wisdom of sitting, of growing into. It's a challenge, in other words, to resist the temptation to, to just get over and to embrace, really embrace this invitation to grow into, to absorb, to just sit So how did the story of Nehemiah end? I wish we could go through it because it's quite beautiful. So let me just summarize it for you real quick because it ended extremely beautifully. So right after Nehemiah went through this process, he went to King Xerxes, got permission to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and the cities. And God here is working through some real unlikely circumstances, I think, by making it possible for Nehemiah to return back to Jerusalem. And so he gets back to Jerusalem to take on this huge project. And soon into it, Nehemiah just hits obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. External ones, like this guy Sanballat, who just has it out for him and his friends. External obstacle there, internal obstacles, brothers and sisters in the community oppressing each other with these really harsh taxes, just running each other into the ground. So notice that after Nehemiah sat down for a little bit and attended to himself, the pain did not disappear. The suffering didn't stop. Jesus' words, unfortunately, rang true. That trouble will come. But what Nehemiah did offer us was wisdom on how to take heart, on how to take heart. And then after the conflicts, he, they, they finished the walls, they finished the cities, Jerusalem was repopulated, you know, about to flourish again. And they, at the very end, one of my favorite parts, they celebrate, they throw a huge party, all to bring attention to our big idea today that brokenness will not have the last word. It's good news, right? Brokenness is not going to have the last word. It didn't have the last word in Jerusalem, as we got to see throughout this Nehemiah narrative. The walls were rebuilt, the cities reconstructed, and all because of the hand of God. And nor will the brokenness in your life or the lives of those around you have the last word. Trouble will come, Jesus says, but take heart. I've overcome. I've overcome it. I've overcome the world. And notice what this big idea allows for you. It's not just the brokenness in your own life that's not going to have the last word. It's also now the brokenness in your brother's life, your sister's life, your friend's life, your spouse's life. It's the brokenness in all of these cases that's not going to have the last word. What we found in Nehemiah today, I think, was wisdom on how we can wait until the words 
of Revelation 21, 1 through 4, ring true, which say this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And here's my favorite part. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Brokenness will not have the last word. Nehemiah's response to the pain and suffering in his life gives us a way, just one way to wait until those words ring true for all of us. I started today with a couple of stories about rejection. And while that was a rather small dose of suffering, I was able to admit early on in my life, um, I have faced worse, unfortunately. And the last several years of my life in particular has been characterized by pretty intense anxiety, like pretty intense. At times, has me just fully debilitated. At other times, cannot get out of bed. Um, and just at my knees, really. And about two years ago, when it was just peaking, uh, I found myself just in the grip of it, and I didn't know what to do. I mean, I honestly thought, like, I'm going crazy, and I don't know how to control my head right now. And so I go to Matt, one of my good friends, and I basically just say, in tears, at my knees, like, dude, I do not know how to deal with what's going on in me right now. And uh, I got to be honest, it's really scary. But I remember it so clearly. We're right outside Biola's library, the little coffee shop there. And uh, I'm in tears, and he doesn't actually really know what to say because he's not inside my head. And get this, he didn't really say anything then. Instead, he just sat with me and saw me and was with me, and that was a huge gift, you know? A couple other friends, Bryce, Joe, Dylan, Dan and Lori Speak, some others, they've all seen me, literally at at the end of myself, just full-blown tears, and all of them sat with me, noticed me, mourned with me, When they didn't know what to say, they wouldn't say anything. They would see me shoulder to shoulder, trying to hold this thing up with me. And then at its peak, I'm in my therapist's office, and thank the Lord, I had just started seeing this wonderful therapist about four weeks prior. And I'm just in the grip of it, and I literally do not know what to do. And I'm afraid to talk about it, because mental illness is just so stigmatized. And so finally, I I just put it out there, And the same thing. She sat with me, mourned with me, attended to me. When she didn't know what to say, she wouldn't say anything. And it was a gift. And one of the worst parts in this whole thing, you know, I still deal with this today, but thank the Lord I've overcome a lot of it. One of the worst parts in that whole season was I was in this stupid stoicism class. I love stoicism, but it was bad timing. Because at the heart of stoicism is this teaching that the way to achieve virtue is by controlling your emotional responses. 
to life's happenings. <laughs> so here I am trying to read Epictetus, and I'm just like, dude, I can't. Like, I just can't do it. And I was surrounded, covered in, in love, and I consider myself really lucky for that because I, don't, I know that's just not the case for everybody. And here are Nehemiah's words. Here's how Nehemiah found God, I think. When life was hard, he sat. He attended to himself, to God. He was attended to. And I think this is the ancient wisdom for us today as we close out our series, Where is God When Life is Hard? And I want to leave you with a couple response questions because they're just, I couldn't dial it down to one. There are just too many places we could all be. So here are a few What's broken in your life? Or perhaps what's broken in the, in the lives of those around you? What or whom do you need to mosey with this week? What or whom do you need to sit with? Or who might need you to sit with them, to mosey with them? And we're going to actually take communion, and it's perfectly placed today because the theme here is brokenness and at the heart of communion is sacrifice is a promise from king jesus that brokenness will not have the last word and he sort of ensured that to be the case in his in his life death and resurrection and so today we get to if you if you want participate in this act of communion, taking Christ's blood, which was shed for you, and Christ's body broken for you, knowing that brokenness will not have the last word. So let me just pray for us as the ushers come forward with communion that we would learn how to, how to sit in the midst of our brokenness with the God of heaven, knowing that God will see to it that our brokenness will not have the last word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a sweet, sweet gift it is to be in your midst right now. Don't want to lose track of that, Lord. And we are dealing with something difficult in this series, God. And so would you, as you've already been doing, continue to teach us more about ourselves and about you, God. Would you, all of those in here, God, who, who have felt so distant from you, would you just meet them today? Would you overwhelm them with your presence your sweetness, your mercy, and your goodness today. God, would you find us all, and would you just make your presence and love for us utterly obvious. God, teach us now how to sit.